Welcome to the Pet Industry Podcast, connecting you with the people behind the passion, the leading experts in the pet industry. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Sprinkle. And I'm your other host, Dr. Mary Cope. In today's episode, we sit down with Dr. Brad Quest and Dr. Stephanie Clark from BSM Partners to speak with Dr. Anna-Kate Shoveler, a professor and researcher at the University of Guelph's Department of Animal Biosciences. Before switching to academia, Dr. Shubler worked in the pet food industry, where she led scientific investigations aimed at improving the lives of pets through nutrition. Today, she conducts research at her university in a continuous quest to increase our understanding of companion animal nutrition and improve sustainability. Dr. Shubler and her achievements were highlighted in an article by BSM Partners, featuring women in the pet industry earlier this year. And today, we talked to Dr. Shubler about how she first got involved in companion animal nutrition, her work as a researcher, and some of her thoughts regarding DCM. I'm super excited for this episode and would like to remind you to click that follow button so you don't miss out on future content. Welcome, Dr. Kate Shoveler. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. As I mentioned earlier, I don't think you were in yet, but you are an extrovert. Maybe this is poor of me, but when I first think of researcher, I don't think about an extrovert. I think about an introvert who's going to sit in the lab. So I'm really fascinated. And actually, Mary, I think you're, you identify with it as an extrovert too, don't you? I am more in line of an introverted extrovert. Oh, okay. Like I come across as very extroverted. So yeah, I'm always excited to meet another scientist who comes across as a little more outgoing. So Kate, what excited you about research? What is your story in getting into to science and research? Oh, getting into science and research, probably to kind of not to steal what Mary just said, but when I was at the end of my undergraduate degree, which I did do at the University of Guelph, I started to look at jobs with an undergrad, and I'm a bit older than you guys, so most of us stopped at an undergrad at the time, or we went to professional school, and I had already decided I didn't want to apply to vet school. I volunteered at the vet school for years, and I didn't, didn't really think that it was what I wanted to do, mainly the interface with the clients was a little bit more difficult for me to wrap my head around, but I really am curious, and what had a, some friends that were in grad school at the time who were my TAs or my teaching assistants as well. And they were like, yes, did you understand what your strength sets are? And they made comments like, we know you don't study because you know we after a lecture and we also see you out constantly. And I rode horses and I also had a part-time job. I'm very busy. I have always been very busy. And they said, you know, you like solving problems, right? And I guess I hadn't really, didn't really realize that. And that was an outside observation. And then they said, yeah, you should go and talk to some people about doing grad school. And I went to talk to a whole bunch of people. And then I found myself in Ron Ball's office, who was at the time a professor at the University of Ball. And he had... I was in the first kind of, he was in the five to 10 year collaboration partnership with an MD PhD at the University of Toronto in Sick Children's Hospital. And he was like, I'm a swine nutritionist, but we're using the baby pig as a model for the human infant. And 
We do all these isotope studies and we're advancing intensive care, critical nutrition for infants. And this is great stuff. And he was bouncing and he's so excited. And I thought, there he is. There's the guy I want to work with. I want to work with a scientist who is this excited. And and that, that began the journey. And so at that point, he actually moved to University of Alberta, which is where I went to do my PhD. So I transferred from a master's into a PhD. And we used the baby piglet as a model for the human infant. And so I had a swine nutritionist and an MD PhD as my co-advisors. And we largely used, at the time, it was radioactive isotopes in baby pigs uh, to measure amino acid requirements and intravenously and orally fed baby pigs. And that's translated into a whole bunch of innovations in parental feeding world for humans. So that's what got me started. And those people with tons of enthusiasm just keep falling um, across my path. And so I have a litany of being excited and enthusiastic and curious mentors through my entire history. Speaking of enthusiasm, did that carry it over into the pet nutrition world as well? It did. That was that was a little bit of a different. I wasn't even thinking pets at the end of my PhD. I actually wanted to go and do this crazy snake experiment that this biochemist out in Memorial was working on. And it's really cool because snakes can rebuild their gastrointestinal tract upon the initiation of eating a meal. So I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. We got to know how that right? So let's go out and do those studies. So I was going to, I had been thinking that I was going to go off to maybe Memorial University. Um, one of my most favorite scientists at USDA at Baylor College of Medicine at the Children's Research Nutrition Center, Doug Burren was talking to me and I just, he's fantastic. I would have done a postdoc with him in a heartbeat. But what fell across my path was just a dinner with an old graduate student friend of mine who was working for the IAMS company. And I had just done a little thing on amino acid requirements in dogs for a nutrition course that I was teaching assistant in. And we got into this conversation and I started telling them how there was no data. Uh, the data was really poor on amino acid requirements in dogs. And I had these ideas and finished the conversation and dinner. And he said, can I go back and tell Dr. Gary Davenport at the IAMS company about you and your ideas about amino acids. And I said, yeah, sure, whatever. And the following Monday, Gary Davenport phoned me. It's a little while ago, so that was still a thing. And <laughs> there was no texting then. And he phoned me and said everything he heard. And he said, can, can you write a grant? Want to write a grant for your postdoc? And what university do you want to go to? And I said, I'd like to go back to Guelph and... I phoned up Jim Atkinson, who's a comparative nutritionist at Guelph, now retired. And I brought my PhD advisor in, Ron Ball, and we wrote the Adams Company a grant, and that was my postdoc. And then as I was wrapping up my postdoc, this job that was meant for me was advertised at the Adams Company all around amino acid requirements and metabolism. And as you can see, the, the story goes, I went to the Adams Company as part of Procter & Gamble, spent a little bit of time with Mars. And then in 2015, I returned to the university as a professor. So, so you have experience working with a pet food company, then you are back in academia. And just bridging those two worlds of science and research, and then 
all that kind of comes with just pets in general, it even more so today, there's a lot of emotion around pets because they're becoming family members and everyone is really interested in knowing about what do I do for nutrition for my pet. And I think these are potentially conflicting worlds. I know in my experience in with pet food, we one of the marketing people said, science isn't sexy. It's the this you have the phrase of there's no crying in science. And from from my understanding, my science background, we are trying to eliminate risks of bias so that we have good research. So along with that, maybe that's made science feel cold and maybe disconnected. However, when we're dealing with a world of emotion, that cold, disconnected feeling can also lead to skepticism and just uncertainty, which is not very helpful when we're trying to communicate. So in your experience, how do we navigate through these two kind of worlds where we can ultimately try to help pet owners in making nutrition decisions for pets. So that how you do it and the why you do it, I think I'm going to kind of parse those two apart a little bit. I think that one of the things that we have to do is really be more data-driven as scientists. But when we do have those data-driven conversations, we first need to have them amongst ourselves. We're trying to make sure that we come to a consensus. And that's where I'm really leading that, that endpoint in terms of the science. There, there's a lot of push to talk about every university is doing it. Every research institute is doing it. Every paper gets a pub. So you're going to get, you're going to get a story on each paper. And what a consensus does is it takes the body of literature. And it goes through that entire literature to understand what the differences are between each of this, those studies and where they agree and where they disagree and where the gaps are that we need to fill those. And so most importantly is when we do get to con- get together to come to consensus, which we have to do, and it exists all over the scientific community, I would say that I think in general that has been poorly done in the pet food industry. There's very few consensus on pet food and we could get into some of the intricacies of that. It's like the consensus on the types of dietary patterns that people choose to follow, which by the way are close to ones that they pick for their pets as well. And so I think when we think about consensus around pet food, I don't know why we're not leaning on our human dietetics and dietary patterns colleagues more to understand how to navigate that with different populations, right? Because it's about understanding and food is a belief. That's, I think, the thing we need to remember there. My partner is Italian. Trust me, there's a culture who believes as though it's a deity that there's no better food than Italian food. It's overreaching. So think about translating that onto 
a consumer is very hard. So we have to have the consensuses to decide and we have to do it understanding that there's different dietary patterns that our pet parents want to follow for their pets. And I think we're caught a little bit, at least I can tell you when I teach pet nutrition, our first lecture, I say, so what do you think I think is the best diet and what do I feed my pets? And I watch a hundred students go berserk over trying to figure out what my belief set is because that's really what they're trying to follow, right? But the why we have to do it is there are a lot of choices for our pet owners. And I don't know why we've done this or how we've done it, but it's almost like putting, there are some dietary regimens that people follow that they become religious about. But pet owners are religious about the choice that they make for their pets. So how do we dimensionalize this? How do we meet their needs? Our job as nutritionists are to make sure that we give them food ingredients that they want, meeting the nutrient delivery that we know will support the pet. There's a lot of published papers out there. For a pet parent looking for the answer to any question, they can find a dozen papers saying, yes, this ingredient is great and should definitely be used in pet food. And then they can find a dozen papers that say, no, this is the worst ingredient. It's not good for pets. It should not be included in pet food whatsoever. And so I think that's where a lot of this consumer distrust is coming from, because what sources do you trust? What sources do you not trust? How can you tell what's good and what's bad in pet food? And so from a researcher's perspective and for someone working in the university setting where, you know, ideally all of the research that you're doing is in, in a university is supposed to be less biased or unbiased compared to some of the research that specific companies are putting out more so to promote their brands. Can you speak on what we look for when we're looking for a good source versus a bad source or what papers to trust, just how pet parents can navigate this minefield of Google? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a really good point, Mary. I think that you're right in the fact that I am, I don't Google probably enough on which diets to select. And I probably should do that exercise quite a bit more. One that I do is I do talk to people who work in pet retail whenever I go in, just because I, I want to see how their opinions changed or who's been last at their door sharing information. But the, we have a bigger onus to probably better inform and have a an unbiased source of information for the veterinarian, which is the first line of pet health in the pet owner's mind. And I think that additionally needs to be not just through vet nutritionists, but also through nutritionists, but probably through more of a centralized consensus as well. So we don't kind of, you can see that in animal egg, it has worked quite well. I think we get largely consensus around nutrition in animal egg because the experts come together. They do work on a lot of consensus. They do work under same, the same kind of constraints when they're trying to formulate diets and feed the animals. 
but those are so much more variable in the pet food industry. So it means that we need an unbiased source of information. And that to me means because everybody, we all have perceived conflicts of of interest, whether we're vet nutritionists, whether we're nutritionists, especially in the United States, there is no centralized source of funding for academics to do work on pet nutrition. I'm lucky in Canada, there is, right? So I hold an NSERC discovery grant and I'm developing techniques to measure amino acid requirements in cats. That doesn't exist almost anywhere else in the world. So I think we have a couple of things. We need these agnostic routes of funding and we need teams, consensus teams that draw from multiple universities and from the sector to come to consensus and communicate it probably to veterinarians as the first line and then secondary to consumer. And since you brought in veterinary, can I bring you in, Dr. Brad, and your experience as well with this? Because you are a veterinarian, you were in clinical practice for a long time, and now you have been in the science and research side of things, and you've seen the industry side. So you have multiple perspectives here. So what are your thoughts with both bringing in, mixing that science and emotion when it comes to the pet industry, as well as trying to help pet owners navigate these seemingly confusing pieces of information? Megan, that that's a really good point. And when you look at it from the clinical practicing veterinarians standpoint, most of them are so busy doing their clinical work. They understand a lot of times why the research is important. And in, in, in a lot of cases, they understand how it was done. Probably one of the biggest things, and I actually, this isn't just my opinion. I get this from a lot of clinical veterinarians that I do come into contact with is they don't necessarily have the time to really dive into it. And so in a lot of, in a lot of cases, they look to certain groups or certain institutions for their own information. Now, it's not always because they don't want to. Like I said, it's a time factor. There's only so many hours in the day and anybody who's practiced would probably agree that it's not that they set out to graduate veterinary school and probably spend all their waking hours practicing medicine. But in a lot of cases, that's just the way it happens. I think to actually be able to communicate to them in a way that's easy for them to understand and very concise, like Dr. Shoveler was talking about, kind of bridge that gap between academia and research and clinical. And where it's really important to the pet parent and the consumer is that their veterinarian is where they're probably going to get most of their information on not just pet food recommendations, but everything which is probably the way it should be. Everything from, you know, flea and tick medications to obviously food and supplements. Supplements are huge now, not only in, and it's a carryover probably from human supplement use. We're so close to our pets and in so many cases, they actually are parts of the family. But again, there's so many recommendations they get from their own veterinarian. And a lot of times 
they just don't have the time to do their own research. I think it's super important for us to be able to present that to the clinical community in a way that's really easy and really unbiased for them to understand. And I think a great example of this, both the emotion, the science, the trying to navigate everything within the veterinary clinic to the pet owner is the nutritional DCM. And so both Dr. DeBradquest and Dr. Kate Shuttler, you've both been drawn into this world on the research side. So going back to Dr. Shuttler, how did you go from amino acids to doing pulse research? And what was some of your research about? Yeah, the, the connection is that originally, when you look at lamb and, lamb and rice-based diets, that was believed to be due to a limitation in methionine bioavailability. And methionine is the upstream precursor of taurine. And so methionine does a lot of other things, but it also makes cysteine. And then cysteine is the direct precursor to taurine. And so because of the overlay with sulfur amino acid metabolism, which uh, I have spent a lot of time focused on, this was an obvious route. In addition, my close colleague, Dr. Adroni Verbrogi, is really interested in methyl groups, especially choline. And choline is a really important part of methionine metabolism as well. That's our area of expertise, but really part of the reasons why I ended up getting involved is a Canadian company. Actually, a number of Canadian companies were really interested in supporting some research into understanding different parts of dilated cardiomyopathy. But what first was our entry is that Pulse Canada uh, came to talk to me about whether it was pulses. And then I said, it's not, I don't think it's pulses. I think it's the inappropriate use of pulses. And then they said, can we write a review so we understand where we start? And that's, I did not get paid to write that review, just to be clear. But myself and my postdoc wrote it because we were really interested and we were really interested in diverse opinions on DCM. And so that was a multi-collaborative paper that included authors from Prairie Swine, University of Saskatchewan, a number from Guelph, Purdue, Kansas State and UC Davis. So we went really broad on on that review and we identified a bunch of gaps in that review. And then I can never help myself because when there's a gap, somebody needs to start to fill it. And so then I started writing grants and throwing them at companies and got a whole series of things funded through that. Your problem solving nature came out. So <laughs> exactly. We need more and we still need a lot more. It, there's, I think this is an opportunity to really point out to it kind of going back to our conversation on consensus. One, one paper is never the golden ticket. In fact, a group of papers from one research lab is never the golden ticket. What is really compelling is when you get different designs of an experiment conducted at different places globally using different genotypes under different environmental conditions, and you start getting similar bits and pieces of data, that's when you know what's common 
and what's variable, right? And so it's not just from my lab. There's lots of labs in North America that have been contributing to the body of the of literature as it surrounds pulses. Now, as someone who has a perspective for both United States and Canada pet food markets, as well as extending into Europe, are you seeing a lot of similar concerns between these different demographics of pet owners or are certain things only popping up in the U.S.? What are your takes on the research that's being conducted in these different locations along with pet consumers' viewpoints of pet food? Yes. Yeah, so I think, Mary, something that the rest of the listeners don't know, which is I've been living in the Netherlands for the past eight months and have three months to go as part of my sabbatical, which Canadian and American professors get to take if they apply for it every seven years. And so I'm working with the Animal Nutrition Group here at the universe, or at Wageningen University and Research. And in fact, when I most recently gave a post presentation, the animal nutritionists have never heard of DCM. The pet nutritionist had heard of, was aware of DCM, but they also talked to me every day <laughs> for the last eight months. So that probably is, is in part and clutch. And he also collaborates quite extensively with Kelly Swanson as well at the University of Illinois. He was aware of it, but when you talk to veterinarians here, it doesn't seem to be as prevalent. We did a global survey looking at how brain consuming and pulp and non-brain consuming pet parents, what their habits and practices are. And they're different globally and they're different between owners that are specifically looking for grain containing foods versus owners who are specifically looking for pulse containing as an example. But we further got into that data and we also started to look at how pet owners globally interact with their animals more. So one thing, I have a 12-year-old son, so you can over overlay this a little bit if you have children as well, but he was very quick to notice that most of the dogs here aren't neutered. They look quite a bit different. <laughs> and there's, there's a big difference among North America and Europe is just the amount of animals, for example, that are intact versus neutered. Uh, I'm in the Netherlands, and my goodness, these people are active, which means that by default, their dogs are more active. And there, there is not a moment that I look out my front window in a small village that we live in that somebody's not out walking their dog. And is it also something that owners in Europe do that owners in North America don't do? And Canadians and Americans are very similar in how they conduct their lives. We share most things, right? We have a very common way of going about life, and it's a very North American perspective. So it does not seem to be known and or exist here. And I'm not saying that it doesn't, but nobody's really talking about it. Yeah, very interesting. You also have to wonder, I know that I'm in the dog showing world. And occasionally someone will pay to either import a dog or import semen to breed to some European lines. But the genetics, if I were to take, I, I'm showing smooth collies right now. If I were to take my American bread and Canadian bread, you do a lot across the border, smooth collie over to Europe, she would likely not do very well in the breed ring because the standards are slightly different. And what the judges are looking for are 
a little bit different. So clearly, if they're if they look that different, there's some difference in genetics and things have been bred. Certain traits have been bred for in European lines versus American lines. And that's going to extend far beyond just smooth collies. It's going to be all breeds. So you also have to wonder if there may be traits that we're selecting for that have unintended genetic consequences linked to them that we've been breeding for here in North America that in the European lines of dogs, maybe they've avoided those genetics inadvertently. Yeah, that's I didn't I I didn't know that about breed standards between the two countries, but absolutely. And I think what most people don't appreciate is that the dog's genotype is extremely flexible and rapidly can change, which speaks to the diversity of all the breeds that we have, despite the fact that the original was Canis lupus. And look at now we have from little tiny things to giant giant things. Their, their phenotype is very different, so their genotype is. Yeah, I would also, I think too, that there's other things that we're not considering that we know more about now. To ladle on your genetics example, we now know that the way in which we don't know it as much about puppies and kittens, but we certainly know the food that infants are exposed to early in life can be predictors of the diseases that they get later in life, as an example, right? Do we also have different practices early in life that are predisposing dogs in North America to something different? I can go down a million paths with this in a heartbeat and talk to you for hours. I'm obsessed about disruption of circadian rhythm and what that can do to your metabolism. So I think about, oh my dog, or oh my God, are is everybody's dog sleeping in their living room? And I go to bed at 10 o'clock, but my husband doesn't go to bed until 1 a.m. And then I get up at 5 a.m. This dog is exposed, if it's in that central living area, to not what would be a regular circadian rhythm for that dog. So how does that contribute? What about environmental pollution? As an example, we're not, you know, we, they're talking about this in human nutrition. What about in pet nutrition? Are we talking to pet owners about how far, how much food they buy on mass because it's on sale? Don't do that for all the listeners. Buy one bag at a time, every single time. Never buy more than one bag. Always store it in a safe, dry place. It's not good forever and under every condition. So there's a lot of factors that that we have to think about when we think about the health of pets as it surrounds. Now that we've thoroughly scared everyone to death, no. <laughs> I think that goes back to show how complicated research can be too, because we you are trying to eliminate so many of these variables, these things that could potentially impact this one thing that we're trying to look at, that it starts to be really challenging. All the more reasons to, as you said, Dr. Shoveler, that being able to look at research from different laboratories and different groups of researchers and then coming together to, to assess all of that and look to try to find a consensus, that's all the more important when we are dealing with things with that are so layered and, and potential confounding factors. I guess to leave some people with a, with a good note, what is one thing that you would like to kind of leave pet owners with 
the research that you've looked at so far? I think in general, what I would like to convey for especially those who are interested in alternative proteins, vegan diets, vegetarian diets is our most recent work suggests that some of the most commonly used pulses included in fairly high levels in dog food did not create any health problems at all. And we measured a wide array of outcomes, including cardiac outcomes. And similar to the human nutrition data, pulses when used properly are quite safe. But every ingredient when used improperly is not safe. That's why you look to nutritionists to formulate diets for you. That's, I think, a good way to end. (laughs) We always like to end with a couple of fun questions. So Mary, do you want to start with a fun question? Sure. I was wondering, Dr. Shubler, do you have any pets yourself? I do. We, back in Canada, we have a 17-year-old black cat named Zola. And if you are an English buff, it is, he was not named after Emile Zola. I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm married to an Italian, so he was named after John Franco Zola, the Italian football player. I'm in Europe, so I'm being forced to say football rather than soccer. And so we also have a 17-year-old miniature Dotson named Hart. And Hart was actually one of my research dogs at Procter & Gamble. And so when I left my researcher that I spent the most time with, and she actually conducted all the amino acid requirement studies that we've hence published, she was like, you are not leaving here without one of your research dogs. And so I was actually originally going to take a black lab, but those dogs didn't come up for adoption. Everybody seemed to think that I needed a terrier. They said it resonated really well with my personality. And the Dotsons filled out filled out that. So they gave me the sassiest Dotson that there is. But she is sassy. And she's doing well. She has spent the last year with my veterinarian, Dr. Rosenfeld. And he's taking great care of her. No, no pets made the journey to the Netherlands. No, we were in, to be honest, we flew in August of last year as well. And it was cacophony getting out of Toronto Pearson International. We still had mask mandates and vaccination mandates. And there was a lot of paperwork. Everything was late. Everything was packed. Everybody was angry. So I'm really glad that we didn't then. We did think about going back to get her. We... 17-year-old Dotson is an old Dotson, and we felt that much change would be too hard. What I failed to tell you is that her, my friends and her veterinarian also lives two doors down, and she'd been to his house a million times, and she spent tons of time with them. So it was very comfortable, and they were very happy to do it. Mm-hmm. But when we came to the Netherlands, we did inherit a 22-year-old cat, but we very recently, he had to be euthanized. But he was dealing with some kind of neurological. And honestly, I, if anybody has me on Facebook, I almost never post personal things on Facebook. And despite spending six months with this old guy and knowing he had health problems when he came into our house, I cannot believe how he trained wrecked us emotionally. Oh. It was really hard to lose him. He was a really funny cat. It took a while to realize he 
didn't understand English, right? Because he was very badly behaved. And we kept saying no. And then one day my husband went, nay. And, and he turned around, waited, waited. We were like, oh, he doesn't know what no means. He only knows what nay means. But he was a blast. And I think we were really lucky to have the gift to spend his last day. Going back to the human-animal bond there, <laughs> the emotions that come with it. Um, what is something that you are really proud about in your career? I think probably it would be twofold. So it would be the amount of pets that I've been able to help with the wide variety of research I've been in either supporting or leading. And then number two, I have some pretty phenomenal students that are coming out into the pet food industry. And it has been fun to watch them grow, see their curiosity, see their passion for science and for pets. The pets and the students would be my two. I think that could be a good place to end. But Mary, do you have one last question? I think this has been great. It was wonderful to meet you, Dr. Shoveler. And I guess the only question that I really have left, and I don't want to take forever ever on this, but there's a lot of, I think, misconceptions that a lot of researchers or a lot of people who work in industry are in or in science and academia are paid off by the, the, the big pet food makers. Additionally, veterinarians as well. There's a big misconception there. So if you could just really quickly address that. And then what do you think the biggest misconception in the pet food industry is? Okay. So the first thing is that while I think a lot of us in North America, first of all, getting grants and supporting students, I get nothing from that. That is, it's my job as a public servant, just like it is for every professor in North America. We are technically employed by society. We are charged to deliver education programs to society. And that's an understanding coming into a faculty position. Now, in North America, we can consult, but the thing is that you cannot consult to the point where it harms your job either, which if many professors were wildly busy with what we do normally. And so consulting is a very small amount of our time. So in terms of the financial reward that we get from consulting, it's not there. And to be frank, I have never consulted on we don't get called in on in-market catastrophes. They'd never bring a consultant in on an in-market catastrophe. That's, I don't have the time to spend on it, to learn it. They know every industrial partner knows that. We get called in on far larger kind of scale prospective items usually. I, in terms of conflict with interest, I push back. This is a North American thing. It, especially with academics, it, we have a mutual interest with the industry because we do research to try to fuel and push the industry to be better. And by nature, that means that we need to work with the industry to help them apply the data that we've, that we've generated and to continue to evolve these products. So if anything, everybody should be saying, why isn't academia and industry working more together? Because it brings in different perspectives and we tend to be pretty diverse. I, I sit on committees from 
like from poultry nutrition to beef cattle nutrition to, I have no idea why, but I am advising a student on lemur nutrition this coming fall with the help of the Toronto Zoo. We have this really wide perspective that can be beneficial in most of these conversations. And in terms of the biggest myth in the pet I will be very provocative, and I would say that the definition of quality lacks data. And so how pet food companies have positioned themselves to look superior versus less superior, where I could dissect them and apply them to different types of owners, different price points, different nutrient ingredient philosophies. So there is no one best diet on the market um, and we need better quality metrics to allow the consumer to make their own educated decision about pet food quality and that doesn't exist. I think that's really great. Dr. Kevler, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on the Pet Industry Podcast, a BSM Partners production with editing by Cliff Dubinois. Your podcast team is me, Dr. Megan Sprinkle, and Whitney Russell. If you want to learn more about our family at BSM, please visit our website at bsmpartners.net. And please make sure you are subscribed to the podcast, tell a friend, and find us here next time.